Long before my book Positive Pushing was published. Long before I wrote it. Long before I even had the idea of positive pushing. The most common question I was asked at the many parenting workshops I gave was, should I push my child? There are two schools of thought here. One school of thought says, I must push my child. If I don't push my child, he won't get good grades, won't get into a good college, won't have a good career, and will end up living with me the rest of my life. What's the danger here? That your child will become angry, resentful, and rebellious. The other school of thought says, I'm not going to push my child. My pushing won't really make a difference, and in the long run, I want my child to still love me because I will want to live with him later in my life. What's the danger here? That your child will become self-satisfied, unmotivated, and complacent. Let me say this from the outset. You must push your child. It's your right, your responsibility, your absolute moral imperative. It isn't whether or not you push your child, but rather how you push, when you push, and when you back off. Unfortunately, pushing has gotten a bad rap. Many parents comment that when they first saw pushing in the title of my book, they cringed a bit. In fact, when my agent began shopping positive pushing to publishers, a number of them liked the book but wanted to change the title. They said that it was too much of a hot button issue, that it would turn people off. Fortunately, the publisher who bought my book, Hyperion, liked the title because it was such a hot button issue. To help reduce some of the cringe in pushing, I want to make a distinction between old style pushing and positive pushing. Old style pushing is negative, controlling, angry. And at the heart of old style pushing is a threat. If you don't do what we want, we will not love you. Old style pushing is also about the needs of the parents, not the children. Parents are pushing their children because it's good for them, not the kids. The problem with old style pushing is that it works to a point. Early in your children's lives, the most important thing in their lives is receiving love from you. And they will do anything they can to get that love. Unfortunately, at some point, usually in their early teens, children start to think that they shouldn't have to work that hard to get your love, and that's when they start to push back. Positive pushing is very different. It is, by definition, positive. It's loving, supportive, and encouraging. And at the heart of positive pushing is a very different message. We will love you no matter how you perform. It shows love, respect, and value. And positive pushing is always about the needs of your children, what is in their best interest. That doesn't mean always giving them what they want, what is fun, or what feels good to them. It means knowing what is best for your children and doing what is best for them, even if they may not like it. A key aspect of positive pushing is that before you can push your children, you must push yourself. This means knowing what you bring to the table as parents, looking at what messages you're sending to your children, and being sure that most of those messages are healthy ones. I make an important distinction between children who achieve success and those who are successful achievers. Children who achieve success are those who get straight A's in school, star in sports, and are saving the world on weekends. But these children are often profoundly unhappy. It's almost as if parents had to choose between whether their children would be happy or successful. Successful achievers are those whose parents believe that success and happiness are mutually inclusive that children cannot be truly successful unless they're also happy. Your goal is to raise successful achievers. My book Positive Pushing is divided into three sections, what I call the three pillars of successful achievers. These pillars are the three factors that I believe are essential to raising successful and happy children. Those three pillars are self-esteem, ownership, and emotional mastery. The remainder of my talk will focus on these three pillars. Self-esteem is the most misunderstood and misused developmental factor of the past 30 years. Child-rearing experts in the early 1970s decided that all of the efforts of our society should be devoted to helping children build self-esteem. They said that the best way to develop self-esteem was to ensure that children always feel good about themselves. Parents were encouraged to love and praise and reinforce and reward their children no matter what they did. Unfortunately, this approach had the exact opposite effect of the intended goal. It created children who were selfish, spoiled, and dependent on others to feel good about themselves. Parents were also led to believe that they had to be sure that their children never felt bad about themselves because that would hurt their self-esteem. So parents did everything they could to protect their children from anything that might create bad feelings. 
Parents didn't scold their children when they misbehaved. Parents didn't discipline their children when they didn't give their best effort in school and sports. School communities did their part too to protect children from feeling bad about themselves. For example, school grading systems were changed. I remember between 6th and 7th grade, my middle school replaced F for failure with NI, needs improvement. God forbid I'd feel bad about myself for failing at something. Sports eliminated scoring, winners, and losers in the belief that losing would hurt children's self-esteem. My four-year-old niece came home one day from a soccer tournament with a ribbon that said number one winner on it. When I asked her what she did to deserve such a wonderful prize, she said that everybody got one. Though Woody Allen once said that 90% of success is just showing up, it's the last 10%, the part that takes hard work, discipline, patience, and perseverance that true success is all about. Children are being led to believe that, like Woody Allen's view, they can become successful and feel good about themselves just by showing up. In its poorly conceived attempt to protect children's self-esteem, our society caused the very thing that it took such pains to prevent. Children with low self-esteem, no sense of responsibility, and the emotional and behavioral problems that go with it. Of course your children need to feel loved, valued, and secure, but that's only half of the self-esteem equation. The parenting experts neglected to share with parents the other half that builds true self-esteem. Much of your parenting should be devoted to helping your children develop the belief that their actions matter, that their actions have consequences. If they do good things, good things happen. If they do bad things, bad things happen. And importantly, if they do nothing, nothing happens. You must allow your children to experience this connection, both success and failure, in all areas of their lives, including school, sports, the performing arts, relationships, family responsibilities, and other activities. The supposed benefit of the it's not my fault mentality is that children's self-esteem will be protected. If children aren't responsible for all of the bad things that happen to them, then they can't feel bad about themselves and their self-esteem won't be hurt. But responsibility and self-esteem are two sides of the same coin. If children don't take responsibility for their mistakes and failures in their lives, they can't accept responsibility for their successes and achievements. And without that responsibility, children really can't feel good about themselves or experience real meaning, satisfaction, and joy. Also, without the willingness to take responsibility, children are truly victims. They're powerless to change the bad things that do happen to them. Because they don't take responsibility for their lives, they lack the capacity to change their circumstances. Children are at the mercy of their parents and others in their world to dictate how they feel and what they're capable of accomplishing. With self-esteem, children learn that when things are not going well, they have the power to make changes in their lives for the better. The other side of the responsibility coin is what enables children to develop into mature, contributing adults. The goal is to raise children who are willing and able to take responsibility for their lives. Yes, they're going to feel bad when they make mistakes and fail, but you want your children to feel bad when they screw up. How else are they going to learn what not to do and what they need to do to do better in the future? But, contrary to popular belief, these experiences will build, not hurt their self-esteem. By allowing them to take responsibility for their lives, achievements and missteps alike, your children gain the ability to change the bad experiences and create and savor good experiences. Each chapter of my book has a section on red flags. Red flags are warning signs that a problem might be arising with your child. When parents read my book or hear me speak, they tell me that the hardest part is when they realize that a red flag applies to them. Oh my gosh, that's my child. Or even worse, oh my gosh, that's me. If you have one of these epiphanies, do not take it as an indictment on your parenting. Rather, take it as a call to action that something needs to be done for your child. Here's a simple reality of parenting. Parenting is two sides of the same coin. You have a tremendous capacity to do incredible harm to your children. At the same time, you have a tremendous capacity to do wonderful things for your children. You can use this power to raise successful and happy children. Let's discuss some red flags related to self-esteem. The first red flag is expectations. You should absolutely establish expectations for your children. Unfortunately, our culture encourages parents to set the wrong types of expectations. There are two types of expectations that you shouldn't set for your children, ability and outcome expectations. 
capability expectations are those in which children are expected to achieve a certain result because of their natural ability. We expect you to get straight A's because you're so smart. We expect you to win because you're the best athlete out there. A problem with ability expectations is that children have no control over their ability. Children are born with a certain amount of ability and all they can do is maximize whatever ability they're given. The fact is that if your children aren't meeting your ability expectations, you have no one to blame but yourself because you didn't give them good enough genes to meet your expectations. Another problem with ability expectations is that there is always going to be someone who is more intelligent, athletically talented, or creatively gifted. When you set ability expectations, you are automatically setting your children up to compare themselves with others. And comparison with others is another area over which your children have no control. You also shouldn't establish outcome expectations for children in which they are expected to produce a certain outcome. We expect you to win this game. We know you'll be the first chair violin in the orchestra. The problem is that, once again, children are asked to meet an expectation over which they may not have control. They might perform to the best of their ability, but still not meet your outcome expectation because another child just happened to do better than they did. So they would have had to consider themselves as having failed despite a good performance. Setting outcome expectations also communicates to your children that you value results over everything else, so they'll come to judge themselves by the same standards. Like many parents who hear my views about expectations, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I can't have expectations for my kids to get good grades or do their best in sports? Then they'll just be couch potatoes. No way I'm buying this one. Before you jump all over me, give me a little time to bring all these ideas back to the real world. Here's a simple reality that we all recognize in 21st century America. Results matter. No two ways about it. In our society, people are judged on the results they produce. Grades, sales, victories, earnings. Though it would be great if everyone got paid for their good intentions or good efforts, that is not the way the world works. The challenge for you is to set outcome somethings that will help your children to become successful in whatever endeavors they choose to pursue, but don't place an undue burden on them that actually interferes with their efforts to achieve. I make an important distinction between expectations and goals. A problem with expectations is that they're often established by parents and placed in front of their children without their consultation or buy-in. And parents then push them toward the expectations. Children have no ownership of the expectation and little motivation outside of an implied threat from their parents to fulfill the expectations. Children feel like they're being dragged toward those expectations. Goals are very different from expectations. When I ask children about expectations, they usually grimace and say things like, that's when my parents get really serious and I know they're going to put pressure on me. Or, they're telling me what to do and I better do it or I'll get into trouble. Not exactly feel-good parenting, wouldn't you say? But goals are very different. I believe that children want to pursue goals. When I ask them about goals, they respond much differently. Their faces perk up and they say things like, it means I decide what to do and I really work hard to do it. Or, I feel like my parents are really behind me and I'm psyched to do it. One of the great joys in life is setting a goal, working toward the goal, and achieving that goal. Most children understand this. A big difference between expectations and goals is that expectations are all or nothing. They're either reached or they're not. So anything less than complete fulfillment of the expectation is a failure. This black and white aspect of expectations also sets up your children for failure because it means that children have only a small zone of success, anything at or above the expectation, and a large area for failure, everything below that expectation. Goals, by contrast, are yardsticks that children, with their parents' guidance, can set for themselves, take ownership of, and strive toward by their own choice. Rather than being all or nothing, goals have gradations of attainment that give children a large zone of success and reduce their area of failure. Children won't achieve every goal they set. That's impossible. But children will show improvement toward almost every goal that they set and put effort into. For example, you establish an outcome expectation of raising your child's math grade from a 75 to an 85 during the school year. If she only improved her grade to an 80, then she would have failed to meet the outcome expectation. But if she set an outcome goal, even though the goal of an 85 wasn't fully realized, she would still see the 80 as a success because she showed improvement toward her goal. Many parents believe that results at a young age are important, so they emphasize results and place outcome expectations on their children. 
Yet success in early childhood is not always predictive of success later in life. Childhood is about learning, improving, developing, and gaining the skills necessary for later success. Using goals rather than expectations is one of the best ways to foster this growth. A problem with outcome anythings, whether expectations or goals, is they cause children to be focused on the result of their efforts. So if you do set outcome goals for your children, immediately turn their attention to what they need to do to achieve that outcome. In other words, you should help them set process goals. Ask your children what steps they need to take to achieve their outcome goals. For example, how much time they will need to devote, what resources they will need to access, whose help they might need. Focusing on the process also relieves the pressure they feel to meet the outcome goals and the fear of failure that can arise. Fear of failure is fear of the outcome, so if you take their mind off of the outcome, they will have little to fear. Also, if children focus on the process, they're more likely to perform well. If they perform well, they're more likely to achieve the outcome that you want. So, paradoxically, not focusing on the outcome actually makes success more likely. I've just talked about two types of expectations that you shouldn't set for your children. Now let's look at two types of expectations that you should set. If you want your children to be successful, you should establish expectations over which they have control and then actually encourage them to do what it takes to achieve the outcomes you want. Think about what your children need to do to become successful and create what I call work ethic expectations. Commitment, hard work, discipline, patience, focus, persistence, perseverance, positive attitude. Our family expects you to give your best effort. Or our family expects you to make your studies a priority. These expectations should be established in collaboration with your children. This cooperative approach ensures that your children have ownership of expectations rather than feeling that you have forced the expectations on them. If your children feel that they have the tools to meet the expectations, they're much more likely to embrace and pursue them. These expectations are worthwhile whether someone is striving to be a scientist, teacher, professional athlete, writer, musician, spouse, or parent. Regardless of the abilities they inherited from you or with whom they might be compared, children have the capacity to use work ethic expectations to be the best they can be in whatever area they choose to pursue. Value expectations are the second type of expectation you should set with your children. Value expectations are those that you place in your children to behave in a way that is consistent with the values that you want to teach them, such as honesty, respect, hard work, and compassion. Expectations that reflect particular family values may include taking out the trash, completing homework assignments, and being nice to their siblings. Your children may see these as rules and chores, but they're actually expectations of the values you want to have in your family, the values of responsibility, education, and kindness. But here's a warning about expectations. Don't set expectations unless you also have clear consequences for failing to meet the expectations. And don't establish consequences unless you're ready, ready to act on them in a firm and consistent way. If your children see there are no consequences for not fulfilling the expectations you set, they will have little incentive to meet the expectations. Another red flag for self-esteem is giftedness. Our culture reveres giftedness. It tells parents and children that giftedness is a guarantee of success in life. Parents buy into this message and hope beyond hope that their children are gifted. Having gifted children is also very complimentary to parents because it means that they gave their children their gifted genes. The reality is, though, that giftedness is not a guarantee of success. The world is full of gifted failures. When I speak to parent groups, it seems that every parent thinks their child is the most intelligent, athletically gifted, and artistically talented child in school. In fact, in a survey of parents of elementary school children, 80% think their children are above average. Unfortunately, this belief is, is a statistical impossibility, as only 50% of children can be above average. The other half are, of course, below average. Our popular culture conveys the message that if children are gifted, they don't have to work hard to succeed. They just will be successful. How many times have you heard, Tiger Woods was born to play golf? Or, Sarah Chang was destined to be a brilliant violinist? Well, let me be clear on this. No one is born to do anything, certainly not to swing a golf club or play a violin. The only thing that can be reasonably said is that some children are born with certain abilities that can help them excel if they choose to pursue a particular activity. Exceptional performers may be gifted, but it is only one piece of the puzzle for success. 
Perhaps the worst part about being labeled as gifted, fairly or otherwise, is that natural ability is not something that children can control. Gifted children didn't do anything to deserve or earn their giftedness. They were just lucky in that their parents gave them good genes. Also, when gifted children succeed, and they do early and often, they attribute their success to their ability. Unfortunately, if gifted children attribute their successes to their ability, when they fail, which they will inevitably do sooner or later, they must attribute their failures to their lack of ability. They must be unintelligent or lack talent. The problem is children can't control their ability. They can't change their ability. They can gain more knowledge, but they can't become more intelligent. They can develop new skills, but they can't become more athletically or artistically talented. To illustrate the problems with being gifted, let's look at some of the challenges they faced as they grow up. Because they're gifted, these children experience early success with little effort and virtually no failure. These children get straight A's, compete above their age group in their sport, or take advanced classes in the performing arts. But sooner or later, at some point in their development, they reach a level where everyone is gifted. It might be when they get to Harvard, the U.S. Olympic Training Center, or Juilliard. At this point, giftedness isn't what makes these children special, because they're all gifted. And their giftedness isn't what ultimately determines who becomes truly successful. What separates those children who are simply gifted from those who are gifted and successful is whether they possess the skills to maximize their gifts. Unfortunately, because everything comes so easily to gifted children at an early age, many never learn the skills, hard work, persistence, patience, focus, perseverance, discipline, and emotional control that will enable them to overcome the inevitable obstacles they will face as they perform at higher levels. At some point, these children will find that their inborn talent is not enough to be successful. Yet, they will be stuck because they won't have developed the tools to take their natural ability to the next level. You might be getting the impression that I think that giftedness is a bad thing. That's not true. Giftedness is neither good nor bad. But its value to children, or the harm it causes, depends on the perspective that they develop about it. If children and parents buy into popular culture's view of giftedness, then yes, I believe that giftedness will be as much of a burden as a boon for children. At the same time, with the right perspective, giftedness can be a wonderful opportunity for children to accomplish great things. Whether giftedness is a benefit or a hindrance depends on how you define it and the attitude you have about your children's giftedness. Here's what I recommend. If you think your children might be gifted, have them tested by objective and impartial experts. Parents are notoriously poor judges of their children's ability. If your children are really gifted, don't tell them. There's no point. They don't need to be told by you that they have a special talent. They'll figure it out on their own. And labeling children as gifted places unnecessary pressure on them to live up to their talents, when giftedness is only one ingredient for success. If they find out that they're gifted, sit down and talk to them about what it means. If you want giftedness to be a gift for your children, you should tell them that they're fortunate to have this talent, but it's only a starting point. You can give them ownership of their giftedness by convincing them that what they choose to do with their talent, and whether it is ever fully realized, is entirely up to them. I see giftedness as providing children with an early advantage. It places them at the front of the line, but it doesn't ensure that they will win the race. Giftedness becomes less and less important as children develop. I would suggest that, whether your children know they're gifted or not, that you erase the word gifted from your vocabulary. It serves no purpose and holds no value for your children. Instead of emphasizing your children's giftedness, you should talk to them about the attitudes and skills, those that are within their control, that they will need to fully realize the, their giftedness and achieve their goals. If they develop those tools, then their giftedness might mean something. Gifted children will only achieve true success if they enjoy the area of their natural talent, choose to pursue their talent, develop the necessary skills to maximize their gifts, and make every effort to fully realize their abilities. If your children aren't gifted, that's fine too, because they may have talents that haven't been discovered yet, and regardless of what abilities they have, they can still do their best and achieve some level of success. For these less gifted children, just skip the first part of the discussion about being gifted and talk to them about the attitudes and skills necessary to become successful. Another word that is closely linked to giftedness is potential. 
I regularly hear parents, teachers, and coaches extolling the talents of gifted children by saying, she has unlimited potential, or with his potential, the sky's the limit. But as a basketball coach once said, all potential means is you haven't done a darn thing yet. When children are labeled as having potential, they're being told that they have something that they might not have and are being saddled with an expectation that they might not be able to fulfill. Saying children have potential is saying that we can predict who will become successful with great certainty. Yet to call predicting success an inexact science is to be exceedingly generous. It's below tarot card reading in predicting the future. The fact is that we're lousy at predicting who becomes successful in school, sports, the arts, and other achievement areas. Think of all the can't-miss kids who missed, all the phenoms that became phenomenally unsuccessful, or the prodigies who became prodigious failures. For example, National Football League teams spend millions of dollars each year in an effort to identify which college players will become superstars. Yet these efforts often go for naught. Tom Brady was a sixth-round draft pick by the New England Patriots meaning he was not expected to be a very good football player, yet he led the Patriots to three Super Bowls in four years. In contrast, Ryan Leaf was the number two pick in the 1998 draft by the San Diego Chargers, and was considered a sure thing, yet he was a flop from the start and is now out of professional football. I recommend that you erase the word potential from your vocabulary as well. Like giftedness, it offers nothing to your children and only burdens them with an expectation that they might not be able to meet out of no fault of their own. Instead of talking about potential, I use the phrase fully realize their ability. This means that whatever ability they were born with, and no one knows with certainty how much ability any child has, the goal is to help your children do everything they can to fully realize that ability. If they take full advantage of whatever ability you gave them, can there be any greater form of success? Contrary to what American popular culture says, giftedness is actually overrated as a contributor to success. Dr. Anders Ericsson, a professor at Florida State University, has studied expert performance for years. He's looked at experts in sports, music, and mathematics, as well as in activities as mundane as typing, and he found that so-called innate ability was unnecessary to predict who would become most successful. The greatest predictor of who would become most successful was how many hours they practiced. In a nutshell, the more they practiced, the better they were. People may think that Venus and Serena Williams were born with tennis rackets in their hands, but most people don't realize that they were hitting tennis balls and being coached and drilled by their father at a very young age. By the time they were 10, they probably had hit more tennis balls than most high-level players twice their age. Do you think Richard Williams was the first parent to raise his daughters to be superstars? Hardly. But these girls had the right combination of ability, and even Dr. Erickson admits that innate ability does play a role, and desire and work ethic to be successful at the world-class level. There are probably thousands of other parents who tried, but their children either didn't have the necessary athletic ability or physical attributes, they stopped enjoying the activity and chose other pursuits, or they rebelled and quit because their parents pushed them too hard. As Dr. Erickson's work demonstrates, success comes from hard work. For children, hard work means committing themselves to an activity, putting in the necessary time, sticking with it when it's not always fun, persevering in the face of obstacles and setbacks, and being patient enough for whatever ability they do have to be realized. I used to work with a junior sports program in Colorado. There was one athlete on the team, I'll call him Rick, who was really terrible. Everybody knew it, including himself. Yet Rick was my poster child for the value of hard work. He was the first one at training in the morning, the last one to finish at the end of the day. Rick put in more time in the weight room than anyone else, took care of his equipment better, and watched videos, read about, and talked to the coaches about his sport more than any other athlete on the team. At competitions, Rick was consistently one of the worst finishers on the team. He was never going to be a good performer in the sport. Popular culture would call him a loser. What a waste of time for Rick, it would say. Why do something that you stink at? Thankfully, Rick was raised in a very different value culture in his family and a very different way of looking at his sports participation. No matter how poorly he did, Rick was always a happy guy who loved his sport with every ounce of his being. Can you imagine working so hard and never seeing tangible results from your efforts? 
but Rick didn't care about results. He just loved training and competing. Though Rick would never have success in his sport, he was learning essential life skills that would serve him well later in life. Sooner or later, Rick was going to find something for which he had an aptitude, and, combined with these life skills, he was going to be incredibly successful. After high school, Rick went to a good college, applied everything he learned from his sport to his academics, did extremely well, and is currently finishing medical school with an eye on a career in sports medicine. Rick, who is the antithesis of gifted in his sport, is what I call a success in every sense of the word. The final red flag for self-esteem I want to talk about is perfectionism. We live in a perfect culture. Bo Derek was proclaimed a perfect 10. The automaker Lexus's advertising slogan is the passionate pursuit of perfection. Though Lexus is certainly a great car, it is far from perfect. Even a Lexus gets dirty, you still need to put gas in it, and it still needs maintenance. Popular culture offers children images of perfect people, with perfect bodies, perfect faces, perfect hair, and perfect teeth. And every parent wants a perfect child. Star student, super athlete, saving the world in their free time. Yet perfectionism is one of the most insidious and destructive diseases among American children today. We have elevated success to such absurd heights that for many children, only the attainment of perfection can be truly considered a success. Yet, like giftedness, perfectionism places a burden on children that is ultimately far more destructive than beneficial. Perfectionism is a double-edged sword, and I use the metaphor of a sword very deliberately. One edge of the sword drives children maniacally to be perfect. These children push themselves to do better and better, and do often achieve a high degree of success. The other edge of the sword is that I've never met a truly happy perfectionist. Happiness and perfectionism simply cannot coexist. Why? Because what do perfectionists have to be happy about? No matter how hard they try, they're never perfect. What exactly is perfectionism, and why is it so unhealthy? Perfectionism involves children setting unrealistically high standards. They must get straight A's, be the first chair violin in the school orchestra, be the most popular, etc. Perfectionistic children strive for a goal that they will never, ever achieve. Let me emphasize this point again, never, ever achieve. Yet they believe that anything less than perfection is unacceptable. Any perceived mistake or failure can cause perfectionistic children to berate themselves unmercifully, punishing themselves for not being perfect. A brief side note. Contrary to popular belief, people don't have to be perfectionistic in every part of their lives to be considered perfectionists. They only have to be perfect in areas of their lives that they care about. That's why you see perfectionists in school who have messy rooms, or perfectionistic athletes who have little concern for the quality of their schoolwork. At the heart of perfectionism lies a threat. If children aren't perfect, their parents won't love them. When I say this to parents, they find it hard to believe that their children could possibly think that they wouldn't love them if they weren't perfect. Yet that is the most common perception of perfectionistic children I work with. And perfectionism is a serious problem. It's been associated with a variety of psychological problems, including depression, anxiety, social phobia, eating disorders, substance abuse, and suicide. Imagine what it's like for your children to pursue a goal that is unattainable, frustrating, discouraging, disappointing, devastating. After I spoke to a group of students at a school near Boston, a girl from the audience approached me and told me that she had felt that I was speaking directly to her about her perfectionism. She described how she had gotten a hundred on a recent test that also gave ten extra credit points, but she only got seven out of the ten extra credit points for a total of a hundred seven out of a hundred. Yet missing those three extra credit points had been eating her alive ever since the test and she couldn't let it go. Though it appears that perfectionistic children are driven to succeed, being successful is not what motivates them. In fact, these children have little interest in success. For perfectionistic children, failing means that they are failures who are unworthy of love and respect. So their singular motivation in life is to avoid failure. These dire consequences cause perfectionistic children to view failure as a voracious and unrelenting beast that stalks them every moment of every day. If these children stop for even a moment's rest, they will be devoured by failure. The baseball legend Satchel Paige once said, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. For perfectionistic children, when they look back, they see failure catching up to them. 
So they strive and strive and strive to keep failure at bay. Imagine how tiring that must be. Perfectionistic children live in a constant state of fear of not being worthy of love. Every morning waking up and needing to prove to themselves and the world that they're deserving of love and respect. That is no way to go through life. Consider the emotional lives of perfectionistic children. They work unbelievably hard and they achieve success. What emotion do you think they experience? Excitement? Elation? Joy? Those emotions are far too normal and healthy for perfectionistic children to feel after a success. The strongest emotion perfectionistic children can muster is relief. Can you imagine working so hard to be successful and the best emotion these children can muster is relief? And what is relief for? They dodged another bullet of failure. They feel that they're okay, but just for a moment. How long do you think that relief lasts? Not long ago, I was speaking to a group of students and I asked that very question, which was intended to be rhetorical. Well, as soon as I asked that question, a girl threw up her hand and said, till the next exam. As this girl suggested, the relief lasts only a short time because that relentless and ravenous beast called failure continues to pursue them and they cannot allow it to catch them. Now consider when perfectionistic children fail. I don't mean get an F, but rather fail to live up to their absurdly high standards. What emotion would they experience when they fail? Most people I ask say disappointment. But disappointment is far too kind an emotion for perfectionistic children. Non-perfectionistic children experience disappointment when they fail. It's a normal reaction to not achieving a goal. Children f should feel disappointed when they fail because it says that they care about doing their best and it inspires them to do better. Perfectionists experience an emotion much more intense and painful when they fail to live up to their impossibly high expectations. They feel devastation. A perceived failure is not just a disappointment at failing to achieve a goal, but rather it's a personal attack on their value as people. So where does perfectionism come from? After almost every parent talk I've given in which I speak about perfectionism, a parent comes up to me and says, I'm sure that my child was born a perfectionist. Let me make something very clear. There's absolutely no scientific evidence that perfectionism is inborn. All the evidence suggests that children learn their perfectionism from their parents, most often from their same-sex parents, that is, sons from fathers, daughters from mothers. Through their parents' words, emotions, and actions, children come to connect being perfect with being loved. And being perfect becomes children's reason for being, the all-consuming purpose in their lives. Does this mean that there are no inborn influences on whether children develop into perfectionists? Of course not. Some attributes that are inborn, for example temperament, may cause children to be more vulnerable to perfectionism. But at this point, the consensus is that children learn their perfectionism from their parents. Parents pass on perfectionism to their children in three ways. Some parents raise their children to become perfectionists by actively and obviously praising and rewarding success and punishing failure. These parents set expectations focused on results, we expect you to get straight A's, and then offer or withdraw their love based on whether their children meet the expectations. When their children succeed, they lavish them with love, attention, and gifts. When they fail, these parents either withdraw their love completely and become cold and distant, or express tremendous anger toward their children. At a very early age, these children get the message loud and clear that if they want their parents' love, they better be perfect. Thankfully, in my 20 years of practice, I've only come across a few parents who were this overtly perfectionistic. Another type of parents unintentionally instill perfectionism in their children in less conscious and more subtle ways. These parents were raised as perfectionists themselves and are now passing their perfectionism onto their children. They abhor failure, cannot accept their own perceived imperfections, and show great upset when they're unable to live up to their own impossible standards. These parents convey perfectionism simply in being who they are, what they say, how they express their emotions, and in the way they behave. These parents act as powerful and harmful role models to their children. Examples of how perfectionism is communicated by these parents include having to have the house look a certain way, needing to have just the right hairstyle and clothing, their competitiveness in sports and games, their career efforts, and how they respond when things don't go their way. Children see the incredibly high standards that their parents hold themselves to, 
and how their parents treat themselves when they aren't perfect and come to believe that this is the way they have to treat themselves. These parents unwittingly communicate to their children that anything less than perfection is unacceptable and won't be tolerated in the family. The final type of parents that convey perfectionism are the antithesis of anything approaching perfection. They are in fact deeply flawed, but by gosh they're going to make darn sure that their children are perfect. They project their flaws on their children and then try to fix those flaws by giving love when their children don't show the flaws and withdrawing love when they do. Unfortunately, instead of creating perfect children, thereby absolving themselves of the sin of being imperfect, they pass their imperfections, anger, insecurity, laziness, unhappiness, on their, to their children and stay tragically flawed themselves. Perfect is another word you should erase from your vocabulary. It serves absolutely no constructive purpose in raising your children and it causes far more harm than good. My antidote for perfection is excellence. I define excellence as doing good most of the time. I use poor grammar intentionally there because that's how most people talk. And I'm not perfect either. Excellence takes all the good aspects of perfection, effort, high standards, quality work, and leaves out its unhealthy parts, unrealistic expectations, fear of failure, being overly critical of yourself. Excellence still sets the bar very high. Excellence isn't okay, mediocre, good, or even very good. It's excellent. But importantly, excellence allows for failure and never connects failure with the love you give your children. Because children don't associate failure with the loss of their parents' love, they aren't afraid of it. Rather than being that menacing beast that pursues them unrelentingly, children who strive for excellence see failure as an annoyance at worst and a challenge at best, but never a threat. Without this fear of failure, they can turn their gaze towards success and pursue it with commitment and gusto, while knowing you will love them no matter what you do. There's even a book called Perfect Parenting. When I first heard that title, I almost fainted. You mean parents have to be perfect? What an impossible standard you have to live up to. Talk about setting the bar high. But here's a hint. You don't need to be a perfect parent. You just need to be an excellent parent. I can hear the collective sigh of relief from every parent in America now. Here's a bit of news that should relieve some of your worry about parenting. You can actually make mistakes with your children. Being an excellent parent means you only have to be good with your children most of the time. If you screw up on occasion, you won't scar your children for life. You can lose your temper. You can be disappointed when they get a poor grade in school. You can occasionally act like a soccer or tennis or stage or chess or spelling bee parent. Children are remarkably resilient creatures. They can take a lot and still come out just fine. My point is that you need to cut yourself some slack about being a perfect parent. Make sure you and your children do the right thing most of the time. When any of you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up about it. Remember, your goal is to teach your kids to strive for excellence, not perfection. Ownership is the second pillar of successful achievers. Ownership is the connection that children have with the activities that they participate in. It means children perceive that their participation in an achievement activity is truly their own. Their motivation, their determination, their efforts, their successes and failures, and their rewards. Successful achievers care deeply for the chosen activity. Children who have ownership of an activity have a great passion for it and join in for no other reason than the value they place on it for themselves. As a result of their ownership, successful achievers take responsibility for all aspects of their efforts because they're internally motivated and believe they have control over their efforts and their outcomes. Ownership isn't something that your children can just take from their activities. Rather, it is a gift that you give them. One of the great joys of parenting is sharing in your children's experiences. But you should never live vicariously through your children's experiences. One of the most dangerous words in parenting is a simple three-letter word. Two. T-O-O. Of course you want to love your children but you don't want to love them too much. You want to care about their achievement activities, but you don't want to care too much. You want your children to be important to you, but not too important. You don't want to enter the two zone. Parents who become overly invested in their children's experiences may define their own self-worth based upon the success of their children. With this extra investment, you can take ownership of the activity away from your children, and it can become more important to you than to your children.
This excessive interest on your part, rather than promoting your children's participation, undermines their interest by taking away their ownership of the achievement activity. There are several red flags of ownership you can watch for. Are you preoccupied with results, focusing on grades, rankings, and wins and losses more than your children's experiences? Are their activities dominating your family life to its detriment? Are you more excited by your children's successes and more hurt by their failures than they are? Finally, are you suffering from the we syndrome? When your children come home from school with their report cards showing straight A's, do you say, we got great grades this term? When your children walk off the soccer field after a victory, do you say, we played great today? I don't recall seeing you studying and taking your children's tests with them or playing on their team in the soccer game. When you say we, you're saying that the activity is not your children's and that takes away from their ownership. How then do you help your children gain ownership of their achievement activities? Let's look at a few ways. First, maintain perspective on why they're involved in achievement activities, such as sports, music, dance, and chess. Our culture tells parents that their children should be participating in these activities for the fame and fortune that surely awaits them. Don't believe it. Perhaps the simplest and healthiest perspective you can have is summed up this way. The primary purpose of your child's participation is to have fun, foster their healthy development, love of a lifetime activity, appreciation for physical health if it's an activity that's physical, and the development of life skills that will benefit them later in life. Everything else, a place on their high school varsity team, an athletic or music scholarship, or professional athletic or performing arts career is icing on the cake. If you buy into these and only these expectations, your children will be as successful as they can be, and they will also likely be happy. If you're looking for a bigger return on your investment, you're most likely going to be very disappointed and make your children miserable. Having this perspective doesn't mean that your children can't achieve greatness. Someone has to win the Olympic medals, perform at Carnegie Hall, or become a grandmaster. It's just not very likely. If your children have greatness in them, trying to push them to the top will actually interfere with them getting there. By accepting the assumption that your children will never be a superstar in anything, you lift the weight of that expectation off your children's shoulders so that, it, so that if they happen to have the inborn talent and the desire to pursue greatness, then they'll be free to do so without you on their backs. The best advice I can give you to ensure that your children gain ownership of their activities is quite simple. Get a life. If you have a life of your own that is meaningful and satisfying, you won't have to place the burden of your happiness on your children's shoulders. Having your own life will allow your children to have their own lives, and that is a truly wonderful gift indeed. Emotional mastery is the third pillar of successful achievers, and the last piece of the puzzle for raising successful and happy children. It's also the most important, yet most neglected aspect of children's development. In popular culture, children see people who are either emotionally out of control or emotionally repressed. There are few, if any, role models of healthy emotional expression. Think of all the emotions your children feel in any given day. Anger, frustration, sadness, disappointment, hurt. Are these bad emotions? Absolutely not. They are essential emotions. Your children also hopefully feel joy, excitement, and pride. But emotions are two sides of the same coin. Your children can't feel all the good emotions unless they're willing and you allow them to experience the bad emotions. What makes mature adults is not that we don't feel the negative emotions, but rather how we respond to them. Emotional mastery involves being able to step back from the emotions, not be consumed by them, find solutions for the emotions, and then express them in a healthy way. Let's look at red flags for emotional mastery now. Perhaps the most significant red flag for the lack of emotional mastery that you should look for in your child is the persistent presence of unusually strong negative emotions. Part of being a kid is feeling frustrated, angry, and sad from time to time. But if these negative emotions are strong and frequent, your child is trying to tell you something. Recognizing and, re and responding to these unhealthy emotional patterns can get your child on the path to emotional mastery. A red flag you should look for in yourself is emotional overprotection. When your child comes off the soccer field in tears after letting in the losing goal, what's the first thing you do? You probably rush up to him and placate, assuage, and distract him from his unhappiness. Who are you doing this for? You're doing it for yourself because you hate to see your child so upset. 
but you must allow your child to feel badly. Without experiencing and understanding his feelings, your child will never learn how to handle the emotional challenges he will face as he progresses through childhood and into adulthood. So how do you help your children develop emotional mastery? One of the best things you can do is first understand yourself emotionally. In other words, know your emotional baggage. A colleague of mine once said something quite profound. A parent's unconscious is their child's reality. Let me repeat that. A parent's unconscious is their child's reality. This means that whatever emotional baggage you carry from your childhood, you will probably pass on to your children. Unless you know your emotional baggage. You can unpack your emotional baggage in many ways, from introspection, to reading, to support groups, to counseling. How you do it is less important that you do do it. You can develop emotional mastery in your child by encouraging him to experience and understand his emotional life. Your child will learn to recognize what emotions he feels and why he feels them. As your child grows, he will get in touch with and embrace his emotions, both positive and negative, because he knows that his emotions provide richness and depth to his life. Most essential, as an emotional master, your child will learn that he has the ability to alter his emotions in ways that foster his achievement and happiness. You can also engage in emotional coaching to help your children identify the emotions they're feeling, understand why they're feeling them, and express them in healthy ways. Look for opportunities when your children are emotional and ask them questions about the what's and why's of their emotions and how they might express them in a healthy way. I've been talking mostly about negative emotions, but you shouldn't forget the positive ones. Expressing positive emotions is an incredible gift you can give your children. Seeing, feeling, and expressing positive emotions are important because they communicate to your child what to seek out and look forward to. Love, excitement, joy, enthusiasm, contentment, and happiness are the emotions your children deserve to experience. Children learn about positive emotions by seeing you express them and being allowed to feel positive emotions themselves. When you're happy, show it. When you're excited about something, share it with your children. When you thoroughly enjoy something you're doing, tell your children why. With the three pillars behind us, I want to share with you two additional ideas that I think are important for raising successful and happy children. One of the worst messages that our culture sends to parents is that to be great parents, they must be friends with their children. Let me make this very clear. Being your child's friend is not your job. You cannot and should not be friends with your children. If you're friends with your children, you're actually hurting your children. Why, you ask, is it such a bad thing to be friends with your children? It's simple. Friends have equal power with their peers, yet parents and children should not have equal power with each other. Parents have to do things to their children that friends wouldn't do to friends. Friends don't tell their friends to do their homework, and friends don't tell friends when it's time to go to bed. But you must. Here's some news for you as well. Your children don't want to be friends with you. When I ask children how they feel about being friends with their parents, they look at me as if I'm from another planet. It's just not in their mindset to be friends with you. You are their parents. Parents aren't supposed to be cool, fat, or down with it, using past popular culture lingo. When parents try to act like their children's friends, they come across, as one girl once told me, oh, so 20th century. Acting cool makes them look so dorky and desperate. Despite their frequent protestations, your children want you to be their parents. Being friends with you was definitely not your children's idea. Your children also need you to be their parents. Though children as young as 8 or 9 years old often look, dress, act, and talk like adults, the reality is they're not. They're scared little creatures without the perspective or tools to protect themselves from the real world. Your children need someone in their lives, namely you, who is more powerful than they are and who can protect them from the big scary world. Of course, they would never admit that to you. When children are the most powerful people in their families, they live in a constant state of fear because they're not ready to take on the world alone. When you're the parent, you can provide them with a safe haven, direction, support, and boundaries from which they can explore the world. You show your children that you're there to protect them when needed. Here's a simple rule. Parents should have adult friendships, and children should have peer friendships. Make sure that you have adult family and friends with whom you have healthy, mature, and sharing relationships. Similarly, 
Your children should have age-appropriate relationships with peers, with whom they can share and gain support. Freedom from the responsibility of being friends enables you to fulfill your real parental responsibility and allows your children to be your children. Don't misunderstand me. Being their parent doesn't mean that you have to be a harsh, restrictive ogre. You can be loving, fun, and supportive, but it also means earning your children's respect and being tough, though being tough doesn't mean being mean, angry, or controlling. You must know what is best for your children and do whatever is necessary, whether they like it or not, to ensure that everything you do is in their best interest. Not being your children's friend when they're young doesn't preclude you from ever being their friend. Once your children become adults, then you can be friends with them. At that point, you'll want to be friends with your children because you'll want them to allow you to live with them when you get old. The last thing I want to discuss is something that few parents ever think of. It is one of the most important lessons you can teach your children. That sometimes in life, they just have to suck it up. Part of being a responsible adult is accepting the fact that there are a lot of things in life that we don't care to do, but we do them anyway because we have to. How often do you do things for your children that you would rather not do? I bet you just love taking your children to their music lessons at the end of a long and tiring day, or to a soccer tournament 200 miles from home on a weekend. Of course you don't, but you suck it up and do it because that's part of the job of being a parent. Your children need to learn that they too have a job to do, and life often involves doing things that they don't want to do. Unfortunately, our culture conveys a very different message to children. Through the focus on celebrity lifestyles, advertising su that suggests that life should always be a party, and the reverence shown towards slackers, popular culture communicates to your children that if it's not fun, easy, or interesting, they just shouldn't have to do it. If children get tired, bored, or uncomfortable, they shouldn't even try. But children must learn that they have a job to do, and because they have to do it, why not suck it up and do the best they can? For example, I constantly hear children complaining that they hate math or some other subject in school. The following conversation is a common one I have with students when I speak to them individually and as a group. Though it may not convince them right away, they can never refute its logic and they always acknowledge that it makes sense. Here's how it goes. Can you get out of math? No, we have to take it, often with a grimace and an eye roll. But because you don't like it, you don't give much effort. Sure, why should we? What kind of grade would you get? Probably an F. How would that make you feel? Pretty bad. How would your parents feel about an F? They would definitely not like it. And would an F help or hurt your chances of getting into a good college? It would definitely hurt our chances. What would happen if you just decided to suck it up, hate every minute of it, but do the best you can in the class anyway? What kind of grade would you get? Probably an A or a B. How would that make you feel? Really good. How would your parents feel about that? Duh, they would love it and they'd get off our backs. I'll bet you'd like that. Would that good grade help you achieve some other goal, like getting into a good college? Yeah. What life lessons do you think you might learn from this experience? Well, sometimes you just gotta suck it up. Very funny. Any other life lessons? Well, hard work, persistence, patience, perseverance, discipline. Another thing that I found is that many children have a surprising thing happen to them while they're sucking it up in that class that they hate. They actually come to enjoy it. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. So do you think that just sucking it up is a pretty good thing to do overall? Yeah. They often say that begrudgingly, of course. Next time you're faced with a situation you don't like, but you can't get out of it, think back to our conversation and perhaps choose to suck it up. In teaching your children to suck it up, you give them a gift that better prepares them for the adult world, though of course they don't see it as a gift at first. Your children learn that many aspects of life are difficult and uncomfortable, and when they choose to be responsible, suck it up and do the best they can, good things will happen. I should point out that some parents don't like to use the word suck with their children, because it has other less positive connotations. For example, that sucks. If you feel uncomfortable with it, you can substitute tough it out. I will say that most children know the difference in their meanings, and suck it up seems to resonate with them more. The choice is yours. A few final thoughts to share with you. You want to be a positive, conscious, and active force in your children's lives. Positive, doing mostly good things for them. Conscious, knowing what you bring to the table as people and as parents, and making sure that you're sending them the right messages. Finally, active. Parenting isn't a part-time job. 
you have an incredible and terrifying opportunity with your children. Every day of their lives, you can offer them powerful lessons that can help them become successful and happy people. And there's no more wonderful gift you can give your children than that.